clubhouse. By the way, he's written to her, Mr. Baldwin. You still open Gladys's letters? Always. Well, give it to her now. He's accepted the situation, but he writes a little too well. Then I'll give it to her. If you go soft on me now, George, we could lose everything we've worked for. Whom am I going soft about? The dead in the train wreck or your only daughter? Just please don't be soft. No one could accuse you of that. Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode six of the Gilded Age, which was called Heads Have Rolled for Less. It was written by Julian Fellows and directed once again by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses HBO series. You know, Caroline, I, I do these like history supplements for stuff that gets mentioned in an episode that we don't have time to talk about here or else it would be a five hour podcast. Yeah. Um, one of them was about uh, Mr. Fortune the man that Peggy's working for who runs the globe. You know, Sullivan Jones, who plays him on the show, is quite a good-looking man. Uh, the real Mr. Fortune was a bit of a nerd. Uh, he nerd. <laughs> he, 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 he had some dweeb vibes about him when you look at his picture. They tried to have him put on those little wire rim glasses as if maybe he, you know, they were his little spectacles. They were trying to bring a little nerdery. It's just you couldn't hide I, it. You I, know, listen, I wear glasses, so it's not about the glasses. It's, it's more like he just looks like he'd have a very slight build to him. You know, like I love math and, you know, vibe, <laughs> vibe to him. Uh, so anyway, I, I think I think I think they uh, glowed up Mr. Fortune for the show, which which I'm not complaining Rightfully about. So he's like the Hollywood version. As I mean, <laughs> I think about all the time who would play me in in a television movie of my, of my life. Lord, you do. Well, television movie. I don't I'm never going to warrant like a Hollywood blockbuster. But like, you know, you're like a Tuesday night. Yeah, like a Hallmark movie, you know, oh, a Hallmark kind of- movie even. So it's like a romance yeah but christmas time so it would be hijinks of course so you're like the the big city lawyer who comes to the small town and meets like a small town girl at wins heart yes that's exactly how i see it (laughs) the woman takes your son ice skating and then you're trying to meet a deadline but like the power goes out or something you have to go to her house and well we we go we go to the it's not a starbucks because it's a small town so it's like deb's coffee shop and Mm. uh we're we're sitting at like the breakfast bar and the girl well the woman who i don't know yet we both reach for the same hot chocolate at the same time of course yes and our hands touch and there's electricity oh my god yes and then so much electricity. Yes, and then Santa Claus comes and dies, and I have to take his job or something. He dies? No, like, there's yeah. like an incident at the cookie factory. Not Santa Claus dies. Good Lord. But you figure out some part of the recipe because you like sue another cookie company or something in your big uh, lawyer ways. How about I realize <laughs> that they are stealing Christmas magic for their cookies? It's like a real slughorn situation from Willy Wonka. Slugworth, yeah. Slugworth, Slugworth situation. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. I see where you're going with this. So who plays you? I'm so curious. I tell you, the only person I've ever been compared to was someone telling me years ago, you look just like Chris Parnell. 
which we I don't know. see. For all of you trying to actually picture what Mike looks like, go watch uh, Chopped and look for Scott Conant. That's who he actually looks like. He doesn't look like Chris Parnell. It's a real Chris Parnell vibe. Dr. Spichelli <laughs> from U30 Rock. <laughs> no. Pre-30 pre Rock fans out there. No. Just a reminder, we assume you've watched this episode, so we don't go step-by-step step to recap this episode, though there's lots of clips. But you will hear lots of discussion and tangents. So if you haven't watched, though, there are going to be spoilers. So please go watch and come on back. There is a scene in this episode where Peggy mm-hmm. walks into to her parents' house in Brooklyn, kind of stands in the doorway and watches Dorothy, her mother, play the piano. And she just smiles at her, like the same lightning bolt that triggered my Christmas movie fantasy. It hit me that these homes feel so real and lived into me now. Uh, This feels like a very fleshed out world where you're literally just dropping in or eavesdropping on these people. It doesn't feel like a television show. These don't feel like sets. These feel like real homes with real people to me, which, which is a credit to the show i think the show has done such a good job of drawing these characters building this world i don't know why it was that scene in particular but i realized i feel that way now everywhere in the where the russells have their fancy lunch every day and where the van ryans have their in their drawing room where they have tea like it feels very real to me in that particular music scene the music itself and the warmth of the room the way that the acoustics were and the way that it just seems like she's heard her mother play a thousand times being in that same room. That's what I think made me feel like this is also familiar. She's hearkening back to another time when she was younger and she heard her mother play. And so I think that that lends itself a lot to what you're saying about it feels like these two have lived in this home a very long time and she's heard her mother play this piano in this place millions of times. Yeah, like she could just go upstairs and like she would know where her room was and it would be a real place. (laughs) It'd be a real place. Yeah. She could like flop on her bed and listen to her mom play. Right. And whatever Peggy's room is decorated in, like, it would be that. I don't know. It just felt very lived in, in Mm -hmm. a good way that made it feel very familiar. Here's a little time and place note, because I do that extra research for you guys. We're in August. if Because the show, when the first show first started, was very good about giving us little clues as to where it was. And over the last couple of episodes... It's just been moving along. Time has been jumping forward days at a time. But I realized that we are in August. How do you know that, Mike? Because when Bertha Russell asks Bannister to run the lunch, much to Mr. Church's chagrin, and I was sad for Mr. Church, she says the lunch is going to be on Friday, the 18th. I pulled up a calendar of 1882, and there was only one Friday in the entire year that occurred on the 18th. It was August 18th. 1882. Good Lord, I sure hope that they did that <laughs> research, the writers. <laughs> they could have been like, we totally meant for that to be June. <laughs> well, so, but it tracks, though, because we knew Of the course, la- it's a sunny day and everything. It looks very summery. The last time they gave us any kind of definitive date, it was getting on until, like, late June. And I feel like that was maybe episode three, maybe episode four. So for it to be now in mid-August feels right. You're right. Let's talk about some episode themes. There really weren't that many overall episode themes, but one that comes up at the very end or gets said aloud, I think applies to a lot of the characters in the show. Uh, it's, It's this little monologue that Agnes gives. Would you like some warm milk, ma'am, to calm you down? I allowed myself to act on impulse today, Armstrong. Something I never do. To act on impulse is to make oneself a hostage to ridicule. 
when you act on impulse and don't act rationally or logically or thoughtfully, you're going to set yourself up to be embarrassed or to be ridiculed or to make an ass of yourself. I felt for Aunt Agnes in this entire scenario because she was so blindsided. She was legitimately hurt and she did act on impulse. And I felt the shame that Christine Baranski was like shooting through the screen at me. Like she was so embarrassed about having acted this way and just showing up in that room. Like, what was she going to say? Get home, Bannister? Like there was nothing she could do. There was nothing she could say that wasn't going to be humiliating for everyone. God, I, I felt for, have you been in a situation like like that where you're like, why did I put myself in that position? Oh, so many times in my in my professional life, I've walked into rooms, I've walked into meetings, thinking I had all of the facts and I had all the cards. And the second I open the door, I realize I've just made maybe the biggest mistake of my life at that moment. And and the the feeling of that rug being pulled out from underneath you, it's horrible. I've never felt more for Agnes. And in particular, I've never felt her age and and how out of step with the world she is until this moment. She's like an anachronism in this scene. She is literally old world in a bad way. She absolutely sticks out like a sore thumb in that dining room. And what is worse for her is that because everyone else in that room covered for her, they all provided cover in a variety of ways, suggested like, oh, maybe you misunderstood the time. Her family members in particular. Aurora and and Marion in particular. But Bertha, too, in a way that now she owes them for not humiliating her in front of Ward. And it was like, oh, my God, not only did you just burst into a room you were not invited to, not only did you break, like, all protocols, but also now all these people have, like, something up on you where, like, you owe them for this, which is just Agnes is, like, ah, bane of her existence. She wants to owe no one. And certainly not these people, as she's fond of saying, right? There's a quote earlier where she says, these people never stop. If you close the door, they come in the window. You close the window, they come in the chimney. They never quit. And then she goes on to say, you know, Mrs. Astor will never step foot in, in, in that house, the Russell's house, and neither shall I. She is lighting herself up for a coming war, and it doesn't have to be that way. But her attitude is necessitating that it's going to come to pass. Now, the line between charity and pity yes aurora covers for her she's family okay marion covers for her okay she's family but you're right bertha makes the best of it even george jumps in and says well you know we'd love to have you back the line between saving face and and giving her pity is so fine and agnes is always going to fall on the side of now they pity me now they've made me look a fool and now i've looked a fool i'm happy that she takes a moment at the end of the episode to kind of self-flagellate herself but also i don't know if she's even really learning the right lessons here maybe the lesson she should take from here is i shouldn't go to war with these people there's no reason to why it's not important aurora says that last week is is any of it important that concept that she thinks she's so above everyone she thought that she was like the adult in the room striding across that hallway to yell at a bunch of children and when she entered that room and suddenly she realized that no they weren't a bunch of children and she wasn't this intimidating force in fact she was completely embarrassed and everyone felt awkward she realized she didn't have the power she thought she had it was like actually like you know the emperor has no clothes kind of moment she had no control over these people and that was just 
oh, something she could not face. It's a great bit of acting from Baranski because when she's coming across the street, dragging her her yes, impeccable her dress through gown. the dirt, and she oh. is just like a locomotive charging across, huffing and puffing. Church opens the door and lets her in. She loses her breath for a moment, entering into that grand foyer. Uh, you know, that looks like a train station. I mean, it looks like one end of Grand Central Station, that 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 front room that they have. She loses her breath. I mean, quite literally could see some of the steam comes out of her, but she gathers herself up and then she goes, she barges into the room and she sees mm. Bannister and then she loses her breath again. And then what you're saying is 100% right. By that point, now she's been, now she's like crawling in. She's like the yeah. knight who say ye, right? In like uh, Monty Python. She, you know, just nothing but a flesh wound, except for she's lost both of her arms. She's on one leg, hopping around. <laughs> she's got nothing. She's she naked. literally has no leg to stand on at, that, at the point of walking into that room. And again, you know, everyone's staring at her. Like, she realizes that Ward McAllister's looking at her, not like, oh, Agnes, you're oh so right, but like, horrified. Like, oh, this is so freaking awkward. This woman just burst in here. This is obviously, she's about to make a scene. And just because she pumps the brakes right there doesn't mean a scene wasn't made. Only by, I'd say, the grace of of Aurora and Marion coming up with that fakakta story mm. of, oh, you found it must have gotten the times wrong. Right, because everyone comes bursting in like that. Right, <laughs> like, right, exactly. Like, I'm like, here for tea! Like, right. She thought it was the right time, but like, <laughs> right. she's just going to come in like hot and heavy, like right into the tea. Like, right. Oh, play, like, if she'd like, you know, kick the door in with you like a bolero and dirty. a machine gun. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, yeah like, no. she comes in there, she comes in there like, I knew my, my English butler was here. <laughs> I knew that, you know, yeah, it's so crazy. How do you feel about church that he would betray the whole situation and get this whole firework started with this note across the street? Impulse. This is <laughs> this. You're, you're getting right back to the episode theme of impulse. Now, in the moment, I feel for church. I feel so badly for him. Right. We started having this conversation and I'm so glad we spent the time to talk to it a couple episodes ago where he gets so. Uh, emasculated by Bannister coming and kind of whether he whether maliciously or just ironically cutting down the way the Russells do it with their American settings and their their new money menu that they have you know the church was already feeling insecure about the house that he was running and then to have Bertha replace him and and not really show much sympathy to him zero sympathy oh my god to him really like even like tell the staff you know a church like Ugh. tell them that you've been replaced for this kind of thing you know when Bannister like give him like the tap to like go on over to stand on the help side instead of the boss side of that conversation I was like this is nail in the coffin of the humiliation of this whole thing had he just allowed church to kind of be like co-head there and like just kept the servant side the servants and let church stand on the banister side I think maybe that note's not written but banister pushing him to go on the other side that was too much too much so you guys may be listening and thinking well where does that come with impulse this is not going to be something Bannister forgets. He knows oh, someone. No. He didn't get lose his job. Agnes didn't fire him. Agnes is Agnes is actually a very lenient employer in the end of the day. Whether it's laziness because she doesn't want to replace people or just because of these are really her only friends in a sad way that she has Bannister and she has Armstrong, even though they have these these flaws in them. Well, I think she's a creature of habit too, and so she's not going to want to like break in anyone new. She just wants what she's familiar 
familiar with. Right. So what did Church accomplish here other than probably pissing off Bannister and setting him like a bloodhound to figure out who set him up? I'm positive he's going to learn at some point that Church was the one behind it. It's hardly that complicated right. of a mystery. Right. Exactly. <laughs> who else? Who else could it have been? Right. Well, who else has anything to gain? You right. know. Exactly. So I think this is again where impulse is going to come back to to bite you in the ass. I mean, I just listen to Agnes's words. I think you know everyone? You remember Mr. Riggs? How could I forget him? Can we persuade you to sit down and join us, Mrs. Van Rye? I expect we've had luncheon rather earlier than you imagined. You thought we'd still be in the drawing room, didn't you, Aunt? I mustn't interrupt your party. It's so kind of you to look in when I know how busy you are. I should go. Marion was right. I must have misread the clock. Next time, I hope we can persuade you to stay. Heads have rolled for less. That pause is so long. When so she offers long. the excuse and she's like... Let me pull out my abacus here because I need to do some calculations. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Such a long pause. Guys, go back and watch the scene, too. Just because, again, it's just good acting. The heaving bosoms in that room collectively <laughs> holding their breath. Watch all of them. But because of the gowns and stuff that they're wearing, the women in particular are all so riddled with anxiety that Agnes is going to do or say something here to completely fuck the lunch Bertha in particular, the, it's, <sighs> it's, it's actually quite funny, but also like it's palpable. Like even just listening to that clip disembodied from the video, you feel the awkward tension in the room. But the point of that was heads have rolled for less. He is Agnes's creature. I mean, $100 bought him, you know, a little bit of loyalty to go do a lunch for, for Bertha. But he is loyal to Agnes and to the Van Ryan family. He's not going to take the slight laying down. Mm, let's mm, let's mm, talk mm. a little bit more about impulse and there's a great conversation between peggy and marion uh, talking about you never know what's coming next they're talking about the, the train accident which unfolds in this episode which we learned about at the end of last week they're talking about how you never know what's coming next so make the most of what's happening now which again true in life tomorrow is never promised you have to make the most of today but the problem is sometimes i think people rush to making decisions that are not great for them because they want to get swept up in the moment, right? The line between impulse and seizing the day, I think gets blurred a little bit. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I had a hell of a week, Mike. We have tried to sat, sit down and do this recording probably five times. And a lot of it had to do with medical things, having to do with my extended family. And yeah, you're 100% right. There's that feeling of like run and jump and swim and, and play and do all the things. Take that trip and, you know, do everything that you ever wanted to do because you never know. But you're right. There's also those impulsive things that are like, be careful or don't do anything you can't undo, you know, just because you're seeing the day like yolo can go very freaking wrong well and where are we going with this and, and with respect to Marion, where are we going with this you have peggy mr rick seems nice but doesn't seem to have much of a plan a lot of people probably settling in for really digesting last week's episode and the way mr rakes behaved outside of that hotel room door yeah a lot of uncomfortable responses from our listeners and from viewers definitely saying like that is not right like he should not me, have put her in that spot bold is too great 
salacious a word. Just, just gross. Reckless. Gross is the word that I've settled on. It is. It was. It was impolite behavior to to really underestimate what he at did at a time with very limited birth control and reputation being everything. It is beyond reckless to be acting the way he was. And also emotional manipulation of of the worst kind. Yes. I mean, he was essentially saying, if you'd love me, you'd let me have sex with you. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying, but using fancy 1882 words. So you have Peggy, again, she's raising all of the right red flags, I think, for Marion here. She tells him last week, is he going to want to leave society? Has he gotten a taste for it? And Marion's like, no, 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 he's going to leave. We are, we're both penniless people. We are, it's all about the love. This week, seems nice, doesn't seem to have much of a plan. But then you also have Agnes leaving out this truth bomb to Marion, which, which we can't ignore. She hopes to trap the Queen Bee. Now she's caught the drone. But Lena Astor would never set foot in that house if they laid a trail of gold from the sidewalk, and nor would I. Will Mr. Rakes be there? I think so. I wish I could see what he's done wrong. I've told you, he's an adventurer. I suppose he's worming his way into every ballroom in the city. It's true, people invite him, but that's because he's pleasant and popular. Everyone likes him. Everyone except me. Be warned, my dear, he won't need you much longer if he keeps this up. Any minute now, he'll see his chance and move on to more glittering prizes. Agnes, what a horrid thing to say. You don't know him, Aunt Agnes. I know his type, and I am never wrong. You're wrong this time. Now, Marianne accuses Agnes of saying, she says, you don't know him. But I, based on the actions last week, his gross actions last week, and him popping up in the skirmerhorn box at the opera, and doing this, doing that, and appearing everywhere, does Marion know Mr. Rakes? How, has she stopped to consider that, Caroline? I think she just takes for granted the fact that he's popping up these different places. I think she's in that phase of kind of gooey-eyed love where she's, like, excited that he's popping up in these places and not really thinking about, like, like how she had that kind of, like, holy shit moment when she looked over at the box and was completely cool with it until there was, like, some kind of leaning into one another and she kind of started to get it. Oh, man, like, they're, like, actually on a date and all that was happening. That was all very slow coming. Even, you know, the popping up to go to the Clara Barton, you know, event, that was like she was so excited to see him. She didn't bother to think, why is he here? Which was a problem because she didn't really think that through. Right. And also, remember, she's also doing her part to get him invited to these things. Remember, right? 100%. I mean, she, she yeah. has Aurora see, you know, can you get an invitation, to, you know, to lunch with Ward also? So she's trying to help him again because she's trying to get him to an acceptable level for her aunts. But one has to start to wonder whether or not Mr. R whether Mr. Rakes is doing this all for the love and striving to meet the Van Ryan Brooks sisters, uh, you know, the aunt's uh, approval, or is he just improving his own lot? I think I think we should have some doubts. His rakish behavior. I came up with that pun, by the way. Can't believe I didn't come up with it last week. Mr. Rakes acting like a rake outside of the hotel room last week. That really cast a pallor over how I see him as a quote unquote gentleman.
woman. I 100% feel broke from him. Like, the, I'm telling you, that box scene was mm. a lot for me. That that gross smile he gave was a ton of breakage for me. And then, again, you know, the whole, the whole hotel scene. I mean, I know a lot of people would be like, oh, but that's just like romantic or whatever. Mm. He was willing to let other people in that hallway see her in that position. And men don't get painted with the same brush that women do. And he was okay with messing with her reputation like that. Not okay. And he's someone who spends all of his time in the company of women of this age. We have not seen him among other men. So he knows. He knows how women are painted. What's worse is he knows and then obviously then just didn't care, which is in a lot of ways worse than just being mean. Yeah, because he's stringing her along to his own advantage. And that's just terrible. And and frankly, creating this division in in Agnes's relationship with Marion, because he's full aware that, you know, they always meet far away and there's always all these these other reasons why they don't hang out there and so because so because he knows that and because he's continuing to string her along knowing that agnes's home is the only place where she has any refuge think about that all he has to do is keep applying pressure in a way that makes marion continue to bark back at agnes and then guess what she has nowhere to live mike so she has to go with him right like there's all this manipulation that's happening it's the worst kind of emotional manipulation. This is this is the kind of thing that charming emotional abusers do to their partners. It makes me sad that he's this type of person. Yes. He saw is. a meal ticket and he's totally trying to take it. So people are like, Caroline, Mike, what does this have to do with impulse with this theme that you're setting up? Well, because you have all of these red flags. You have Agnes. Now, Agnes doesn't help her case. It doesn't help her cause because she presents this information in the most blunt a horrible sounding way possible. There's no gentleness to her when she says he won't need you for much longer. Uh, he's an adventurer. I know his type. The moving on to something more sparkly is the worst feeling. When she says that, that makes Marion feel like I have to do something to hold on to him because he's going to move on to something more sparkly. So what does it mean and what is she willing to do? If nothing else, just as a knee-jerk reaction against the authority mother figure that Agnes represents, right? It's every young person's automatic defense is to rebel against treatment and language like that oh and the whole like cliche you don't know him like i know him right exactly agnes can't be doing anything more to chase marion into tom's arms than saying shit like it's not gonna need you much longer i mean right i mean it's it's like it's like catnip to to push it she she might as well be pushing him you know pushing her into his arms This is coming under the category of Agnes treats everyone like children, little children that can be controlled and manipulated. And so you can just say things like that and there's no repercussions because little guys can't do anything. But Marion's a grown adult. She can do things. She can affect society. Right. And so where's the impulse come in? Well, because Marion turns to the one adult woman in this show that seems to have empathy and sympathy for her situation, Mrs. Chamberlain. And these two get together and they bond. And and Mrs. Chamberlain, I really love her. She's one of my favorite characters in the show. She lays herself vulnerable. She opens up to Marion in a way that she hasn't been able to open up to anyone else. But then they end up hatching a plan that is full of impulse. It's like the definition of impulse. Let's listen to this clip from these two. It seems very hard that you should be punished in perpetuity. I suppose you know my story. I know what 
they say. Well, to you, I'll confess that what they say is the unvarnished truth. I was with the husband of another woman while she was still alive. I broke the rules. I'm on the brink of breaking them myself. My aunt's rules, anyway. Tell me. There's a man, respectable and hardworking. A successful attorney, in fact. But my aunts believe him to be an unworthy adventurer who's using me to get ahead. And you disagree? He doesn't need me to get into society. He's already there, and I have no money. So why would he pursue me if it wasn't true? They go on to, the clip was like four minutes long, so I had to cut down, but they go on to Mrs. Chamberlain says, well, you need to meet him. You actually need to get to know him. So come use my place. I'll invite him here in secret and you can, you can get to know Mr. Rakes. I mean, this is like the cool aunt buying booze and cigarettes for like the niece. <laughs> kind of, but that maybe that's a super good example because it's still booze and cigarettes it's still something that could get Marion in so much freaking trouble that I do side-eye Chamberlain as a fellow adult, as a fellow cool aunt. I'm looking at her and like being like, girl, you know what you're doing. And if Marion falls out with Agnes, she's in a heap of trouble. So watch it. You know, like some of that was very good advice, getting to know him better, really understanding him so that she can make a more objective call. Because right now we said last week, she doesn't know how she feels. She's confused. So get to know him smart. But then the secretiveness, the meet at my house where she's not even supposed to be at that house. She spends a lot of time at a house that she's not supposed to be at. Yeah. I mean, why not just go back to the, well, why don't you set up some more meetings where you can meet him at the park or something? Like Chamberlain's obviously using Marion and like using this to weave herself back into this, this situation and create like a lot of problems, which made me look at her a little snaky, to be honest with you. It wasn't great advice to say you should hang out at my house when you know it's the wrong place to be you know it's going to cause problems with your family that made me nervous i it makes it makes me nervous because chamberlain knows the price marion will pay with agnes if she gets caught but i think towards the point of getting to know mr rakes well, that's hard to do when you're when you're walking side by side and not actually looking at each other through a park or when you're having these clandestine meetings uh, in places where you can't actually have a good heart to heart or get to know someone in a substantive way because there are eyes everywhere. But you're right. It's a, it's a tightrope. I, I think on the balance, I'm, I'm, I think Chamberlain is being a good friend here. And why? I think she says it plainly at the end, and I wish I had ca- caught this part of the clip, was, you're the first woman since my husband died to treat me like a human. She, she has such strong feelings for Marion for reaching out and treating her not like a leper, not like a pariah, that she is throwing caution a bit to the social winds. Yeah, but the only person to to be punished in that situation is Marion. Chamberlain's already out. So think of how protective she was of Marion earlier on, like how she said, we can't we can't act like we you know, this was any type of planned meeting there in, you know, um, in the shopping 
spree moment there. So we can't we can't be like seen each like this. It has to be very like just talk for a second and move on. Don't like don't linger too much. Or like, you know, when she's talking to her at the bazaar, she's like, oh, don't talk to me too much. You're going to get in trouble. There is a complete understanding and protection of Marion. And then this just feels it feels selfish on Chamberlain's part. Now, does she feel lonely? Does she want some companionship? Yes. I totally understand. And I empathize she because this situation too, is right. She wants she, she does, but she's willing to to get her friend in trouble in order to have that. Is that a good friend? Well, that's, that's not a very so good point. sure. So I'm just pump, pumping the brakes a little bit. You as an adult, you know, you could have a think of another guy saying, well, you could just meet secretly, Tom, and your dad doesn't have to know. Is that a good guy or not a good guy? No, that person would be dead by morning. <laughs> so see what I'm saying? Like, is Chamberlain really being a good friend of Marion or is this a little suspect? But she is complex, though, because Marion then being, you know, we're girlfriends now. And that's very much the relationship these two both are taking on, right? Marion, Marion is treating Chamberlain like a, a finally like a peer in society that she really clicks with. I mean, she tolerates Aurora, but there's some issues there and they're... They're not it's seamless, right? It's not like well-oiled. And she has Peggy, but Peggy is not in society in the same way. So Chamberlain is really the best girlfriend she has in this world. And so she starts dishing about her aunts and she's kind of ripping on them. She's like, you know, they won't give Tom Rakes the time of day. They won't understand. And I give Chamberlain a lot of credit. She says, no, no, your aunts do know how the city works. And they're actually trying to protect you from yourself and from what happened to me. I give her credit for that because it would be easier for her. You know, Agnes, what Agnes and Ada say about Chamberlain. Chamberlain knows what they say about her. And yet she doesn't throw them under the bus. She says they're actually acting in your best self-interest. Okay, hear me out on this part. When it comes to really bad people, like molesters or predators of any type, they're not mean people. They're not people who are aggressive or going to talk shit about your family. They're going to say nice things. They're going to, they're going, I feel like a super grooming is happening with her. Oh, in terms yes. of saying, grooming like, is a very good question. Your answer is answers so smart. They only want to protect you. Well, that makes you lean into Chamberlain. If she said, your answer are idiots and I hate them. Well, Marion might get a little defensive of them and say, no, you know, they've been so kind to take me in their home. Chamberlain's smart. She plays the side that your aunts are oh so smart. They're only protecting you. See, just you can come here and everything's fine. Now, there's a lot of people are going to say, Chamberlain got a bad rap, Caroline. You're, you're being too hard on her. I'm saying hurt people hurt people. And she is willing to take the risk of Marion and only Marion having some sort of consequence for this relationship, both with Rakes and with Chamberlain because she benefits. And so she's cool with taking that risk because there's nothing she has left to lose. That's not really a good friend. Definitely the kind of question that you would ask in a poll question. Is Chamberlain being a good friend born out of finally finding a woman in society that doesn't treat her like a pariah? And so she is willing to bend over backwards to help her figure out her life? Or is she grooming her using Marion for her own selfish purposes because a hurt person lashes out and hurts people? It's an interesting question, and I don't think we have an answer yet. For anyone who is taking umbrage with this characterization of Chamberlain, one, again, I love this character. I think Triple Horn is doing a fantastic job with her. But remember, remember a great point that Caroline, that you brought up last week. I think it was yes, last week. I'm here. What? <laughs> Chamberlain was Turner. We're all pitchforks yeah. and torches out for Turner 
Chamberlain seems like she was a Mrs. Turner who ended up actually marrying the guy. You know, Mm -hmm. she married her George Russell. She's just an older Turner. And would we appreciate what Turner was doing right now with Marion if she was a little older and in Chamberlain's spot? Would we say, oh, look at Turner being such a kind-hearted woman? I taught George how to live. He earned his money with Bertha, but I taught him how to live. You could write the script, Mike. Like, you're doing perfectly. That's exactly what she would say. And what I'm saying is we would have no problem identifying that woman as someone who is sus and we should watch out for. Well, she, I mean, she did make the pitch, right? Instead, Chamberlain says they made the money together, but I taught my husband how to live once he became a widow. Turner said, you've made all this money with Bertha, but she's got her own interests. I'll build a sanctuary to you and worship you. It's the exact same damn thing. It's the exact same pitch. (laughs) It's just worship versus art collection. But the the thing is the same. I'm going to give you the thing that your current wife couldn't give you. It's like, it's Turner's like how it started and Chamberlain's like how it's going. Yes. (laughs) And I'm just saying like, you guys, for for all the sympathy I have for Chamberlain, and I sure do, don't get me wrong, she knows she's toxic. And she's like, come a little closer, knowing she's toxic. Like, that's not good. Step into my parlor, said the Chamberlain uh, spider to the fly. Exactly. Scorpion and the frog. Let's head over to George and Bertha. Against the backdrop of this horrible train accident, five dead, scores injured. The bigger problem from a storyline, from a Russell concern, is that substandard parts have been used. Metal fatigue and a broken axle are the cause of the train accidents. In this in this scenario, George may find himself arrested for homicide. If it turns out that he or his company was ultimately responsible for producing shoddy work, he may be not only financially responsible but maybe criminally responsible criminally criminally negligent homicide uh did you actually hear my my squee in new york when he said let's get some pinkertons on the case you know i did (laughs) you know i did. I was like for all our 1883 watchers come on now like maybe shay and thomas can make like a little um like a little uh, cameo in this one i love love that i would love the idea that the gilded age and 1883 take place in the same universe if you know they do how could they not we're in America at the same time frame. They do exist in the same Pinkertons universe. Pinkertons exist in both universes. Pinkertons! <laughs> well, see, what you gotta do, George, is you gotta find the man responsible for... You gotta find the man. Yes, Shay, this you is got, correct. You gotta find the man responsible. <laughs> Thomas, we gotta find the man If y'all are not watching 1883, come on over with us. Start from the beginning and talk with us through this because it is a lot of fun and we talk Pinkertons, so you get to learn a ton about Pinkertons, what they do, what they're used for. Love Love it, love it, love it. And so, subscribe to my smokes. cameo where I do personalized messages in <laughs> Sam Elliott's voice. So, for $89, I will, so if I will you do want record whatever message you Scott want. Scott Conant doing a, a Sam Elliott. <laughs> you call this meatball. Meatball. No, it's always pasta. He's always bitching about that they don't salt this, the water. This, this pasta is disgusting. He didn't put enough salt in the water. But see what you did wrong here was he didn't put enough salt in the water. Exactly. Sam That's Williams exactly says right. You're so, so George is in this position of he needs clay, he needs the Pinkertons, he needs someone to go find out who's 
fucking taking money and shortchanging his organization. Someone is pocketing the full bill, uh, right? Because the Russell Consolidated Railroad is paying top dollar for material and actually shoddy used material is being put on their trains and someone is pocketing the difference. That's the scenario. If George doesn't find out who is responsible, well, he's going to be the one held responsible. So the episode ends and reveals this guy's name, Dixon. The problem is Dixon, who was the head of the line responsible for for constructing the, the trains and the engine, says that he has a written letter of some sort from George implicating George is the one who told him to cut corners. That is damning evidence. And that's where the show leaves us. What did you think of that final scene? Because that was lighting that this show hasn't yet used. Very dark, shadowy, foreboding. What was your feeling at the end of the episode? I know we're jumping all the way literally to the last scene. Well, it made me start to think about that this guy did not work alone. If he had a letter and we know so much about like Peggy and like how all this like uh, correspondence works that you tend to work with your secretary and you have all this like paperwork done in office, it started making me nervous about who else is involved because there somehow is a George signature at least. And I'm just going to go with signature, not that he wrote anything or knew, knew what was happening, but either someone forged a signature or maybe did one of those like slid it across the desk, but like there was another paper on top and he thought he knew what he was signing, but he didn't know what he was signing and then took it back. And so then now I'm starting to eye spy the people that are working around George and anybody that we may have met because it's no fun to have a culprit be someone off screen that we've never met before. Like this Dixon thing, like this is no fun if it just turns out to be some no face guy. Who cares? It's way more fun if there's someone within either the Russell house or the Russell office that somehow has access to George. George, we can see weekly and know that they had something to do with it. That's way more fun. So that's where I'm leading. Did you feel anything about like where this was heading? If there's a written instrument signed by George, and then let's assume that's authentic or or is an actual piece of paper that exists, not that just someone bluffing that a piece of paper exists, but let's say a piece of paper exists with George's signature on it and George didn't do it, right? We're taking the premise that George actually, in fact, did not authorize them to cut corners and use shoddy material. Well, then, yeah, someone in his inner circle or his household is responsible and working with this Dixon or is the mastermind pulling the Dixon strings. So you're looking at Turner, right, in the household. Yeah. Someone who has access to the house, someone who has a grudge, someone who even indicates to Oscar that there's some concern about the police and maybe his involvement. She drops that little breadcrumb uh, Mm -hmm. when she and Oscar are walking through the park, right? She advises Oscar to get close to George if he wants to win Gladys because George is very devoted to his daughter, makes mention in passing that he's concerned about the police. Well, that's an interesting nugget for Turner to know and to drop to, to Oscar. But then you have Clay and you have that the secretary lady who are always coming in and out of his office, of his home. They're always around. They're always giving him papers. I think they, they slipped him like four different papers in this episode. There's always things that he's signing and things that he's doing. And, you know, I think that he's a very conscientious man, but I think he's a busy man. And yeah. I mean, if Agnes can be overwhelmed by paperwork just with invitations, then I, can you imagine everything that's going on at both his home office and his office office? There's lots on his desk in both places. Mm, I think we need to be eye spying all the staff in both places. I think you'll find most successful people will build an empire around that build an empire. will have an inner circle that they trust implicitly. 
explicitly. And so it's counterintuitive. I know it feels counterintuitive that these these ruthless men would trust anyone, but George is going to trust people like Clay to not do him dirty. Because they believe in their judgment. It's his judgment and it's his prowess that has helped him build this fortune and build this railroad empire. Part of that is I hire and I bring close to me and I let get close to me certain people that I have adjudged worthy of that. Someone is abusing that. And that's going to be a big blow for George admitting that because that goes right to his ego that goes right to his skill set it goes right to his judgment well that's something could be happening right under his nose too it's like one of those blows that are is difficult to to overcome also if you remember they have made such a point to us that the russells have so much more money than everyone else and there's something that comes with wealth that also it's like side by side comes along those leeches those people who even if they were good at the beginning they they end up becoming easily corruptible along the way because there's so much money that there's always ideas circling about how can I get my personal hands on more money? I mean, shit, Turner's a terrific example of that. The more you see, the more you experience, the more you think, how much can I cut off from myself? Tom and I went to go see Death on the Nile earlier. The gal character, she's extremely wealthy woman in the movie. She plays her character is extremely wealthy. And she says several times, everyone, even in her inner circle, they're all targets to her. She she tells Poirot that she's essentially a fearful one of them will kill her because they're all out for the money. And these are like her mother-in-law, like her, you know, maid forever, her her cousin that she's known since birth. The closest people to her, she looks at them all and she says several times, like, they're all here for the money. They don't actually give a rat's ass about me anymore. Power corrupts. Money corrupts. It changes you. A hundred percent. And the higher that they get into this, like, echelon where there's less people to ask questions and more people that are just your own people because there's no one so high up. Up, you know, monetarily as as this group is, there's just less people to to be like scrutinizing what you're doing. Everyone's sort of playing on the same team, if you will. Because we started this conversation by saying we were going to visit with Bertha and George. Well, speaking of rats asses, <laughs> I heard your rats ass. <laughs> That's totally a, a phrase my parents said. So I got no. a lot of rats ass about what my friends were doing. No one gave a rats ass. No. Agnes does not like this language, but here we go. Well, Let's listen what are you to this gonna clip. Do? They know what caused the crash. One of the axles broke. How could that be? It was substandard. All of the axles on the engine were substandard. Someone in my organization used old and damaged axles on the engine, stealing my money as he did so, and killing five men in the process. We must try and control the damage. Well, the company's taken a bit of a dent, but we seem to be climbing back. No, I meant the damage to us, you and me. Can you manage the papers? Within limits. Unless it goes to trial. Because I heard today that Mr. McAllister wants to come here for luncheon. What do you think of that? Well, if you're asking, I think the fact that five men are dead and a member of my staff has blood on his hands is a little more important than whether or not the great ward McAllister comes here for luncheon. It matters, George. I've worked for this and it matters to me even if it doesn't to you. Well, you're right there. I don't give a rat's ass when Mr. McAllister breaks his bread. I'm sorry. I know what I want, and he can help me to get it. 
Rats, asses, all over this place. <laughs> George has never used this language with Bertha before, but we did note some concern over how Bertha talked about and fawned over Ward McAllister and the power that he is exerting over Bertha's life. We noted that concern on his face last week, and it erupts in this episode. I mean, Bertha's priorities are not in the right place here. And I'm not even saying, you know, stand by your man. I'm saying this train accident threatens their lives, their livelihood. It's so much bigger than a lunch with Ward McAllister. It's a far cry from the Bertha who came in with a news the newspaper being concerned about the business and actually being knowledgeable about what was going on and most certainly caring and being like one step ahead in terms of what what they needed to know as a business, as a family. This woman, mm, she was reminding me actually much more of Mrs. Morris and being like, whatever, you know, you do your business and I have my society things. Like she's leaning the wrong way. It was the first time they were not George and Bertha versus the world. They've always been, whatever the cause was, whether it was a social, a, a high society aspect or it was a business aspect. George and Bertha have always been so far George and Bertha. This week, they were George and Bertha. They were on different priorities with different streaks. They were not working together as a team. It was, you know, I don't want to make a joke like, I hate when mom and dad fight, but it kind of felt like that. Like, this this is not the unified team that has lit up the internet and people's reviews of this show and every... Th these two are this, like you know, unsinkable ship relationship kind of thing. And this is high, high stress cracks in it. You know, when you're working together for something, and, and I think this maybe even could be said about the Morrises or the Fanes, when you're working together for something, you're more in lockstep. Once you get there, once they move into that house, once they're now ensconced in this life, then they stay together for a little bit, but they start to diverge. You know, he's going to the office. She's no longer being so um, worried about them getting to the pinnacle. They're there now, and now she has to make her next steps, but they're not together linked arms with George. They don't have to do with the business so much anymore. They have to do with this other whole society portion. And you're right. I mean, I pointed at only Bertha as this is not the, you know, this is not the same Bertha, but you're right. This is not the same George. This George is unlikely to be moved to go to a bazaar and pay off everybody. This George standing right there in front of her is going to be like, I have other fish to fry. If the bazaar was happening today, he's not going to go do all that. Well, he's, I mean, he's saying, I'm trying not to go to fucking jail. Like, I'm going to get arrested for killing five people, and someone is also, like, besmirching my company. Someone is stealing from me and killing people, quite literally. That's more important than Ward McAllister, you know? Didn't it sound uh, like a lot of the conversation, though, that Patrick Morris was trying to have with Anne and trying to explain to her, like, can you please be nice? Can you please be nice to Bertha? And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, right. they're, that same disconnect? Oh, God, it felt like just exactly the same. Right. This doesn't feel like the couple that just uh, two episodes ago, but I think time-wise, it was probably more than a month ago, was we built a fortune together once, we could do it again. Gamble, save the company take down the bastards don't let the bastards get you down kind of thing you know that that birth and george were unified on all matters and george is the same george that used the slights against his wife 
and the reason for punishing them financially on the business side of things. That unification was not here. And I think, and, and again, I think the show did a good job of sowing the seeds. Go listen to George when Bertha is talking about how Warren McAllister is the gatekeeper who can make all of her dreams come true. He's telling her, you make all of my dreams come true. And she's saying, Warren McAllister actually can make all of my dreams come true. And then, <laughs> and to which he goes, huh, and cocks his head. Go watch the scene again from last week. The one thing that they have disagreed upon and have been uh, have been disagreeing upon, Gladys comes rolling in right behind this. Yeah, and this was something we talked about last week, and I said in my predictions that there's going to be a George and Gladys conversation where Gladys is going to appeal to George and beg him to please make some sort of inroads with Bertha. So when they were sitting in her room and talking, I was like, yes, this is exactly, this is like the logical next steps for this girl to pull. As a teenage girl, this is exactly what I would do. <laughs> the fight that we were pulling the clip from went from different priorities, train accident versus Warren McAllister, into their fight over going soft about Gladys. By the way, he's written to her, Mr. Baldwin. You still open Gladys's letters? Always. Well, give it to her now. He's accepted the situation, but he writes a little too well. Then I'll give it to her. If you go soft on me now, George, we could lose everything we've worked for. Whom am I going soft about? The dead in the train wreck or your only daughter? Just please don't be soft. No one could accuse you of that. Damn! No, I mean, that was bad. These that are was... fangs out on both their parts. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, if it's, a, it's, of course, this whole letter situation that leads to the conversation between George and Gladys and their heart to heart and all the appeals that, that Gladys is offering up to George. Like, please, please, please try to fix this situation. I mean, it's a credit to George when uh, Gladys says to him, you can't, you're, you're this titan of industry and you can't even control your own wife. I mean, if my kid said that to me, I'd be pulling across my knee getting spanked. Like, <laughs> like they, put, they put that in the Teenage Girl Handbook. I 100% said stuff like, you know, why don't you deal with your wife kind of stuff. Like, this oh, is what that you would do. Not have flown. It's that called been... divide and conquer. This is what teenage girls do. I mean, I do like that George says you're not in the least ordinary. And, he, you know, he he is trying to defend his wife here by saying in a softer way what Bertha tells Gladys last week. You deserve the world and I will do everything in my power to get it for you. You know, Gladys is saying, I'm not special. Like, I don't need this kind of I don't need the world. I'm not I'm not worth all of that. And he takes umbrage with that and says, no, no, you're not in the least ordinary. I thought that was a very sweet father daughter moment. When you look at Gladys, they have done nothing for us as this character's developing to let us know anything about any talent she has, any schooling she has, anything in particular that would make her a catch beyond her money. This is troubling to me. I appreciate the casting and the way that they actually do her hair and her makeup and her dress, that in a way she she has been played down for sure. Now, this could be a complete like, you know, take off her overalls, take off her glasses, take her ponytail out, and she's going to be like a gorgeous beauty queen. But right now, they are playing her to look as ordinary as possible. So I can appreciate what she's saying. We're like, I don't feel like I'm this extra special catch. They really haven't shown us that. I'm sure there's something more to Gladys, but kind of like Larry, how you were saying, like, we don't have much to go on her yet. 
it's kind of hard hard to like argue with Gladys when she says I'm just an ordinary girl. She's had no room to open up her wings, right? You keep a bird inside of a cage and it never gets to open its wings that doesn't know how to fly. We need to get Gladys out of this gilded cage she lives in on 61st Street. You have to put it on the bulletin board to keep an eye on this crack in George and Bertha. No, it's very, like, it makes me queasy. Yeah, and I don't like it. It does not make me feel nice. This language of who am I going soft on, the five dead or your daughter, no one can ever accuse you of going soft. Like, really strong, vitriolic kind of language here. And and has the feeling of pent-up frustration of, I've been holding on to this. I've had this bullet in the chamber, and, and I'm coming at you now because... You're just you're being You've ridiculous. Me over the edge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, go suck yeah. Lord's dick. Like, I, what are we doing here? Like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> I'm the one in your bed. It's that kind of interaction that leads or pushes a TV character to crawling into bed with Old Turner. Right? It's just how TV works. I, these pieces are all there. I think. I mean, you have to start worrying about these kinds of things. It makes my eyebrows go up because I don't want to sign on for that. I know you're right. Historically, on TV, that is a very cliche way. You know, fight with your wife. Well, then she deserves it that you should go off and and be with someone else. And that is the way that TV That's is typically written. That's Chamberlain's entire argument. I taught him how to live. Right? I mean, I, I was there to soothe him for the five dead. Right. I was there to soothe him for the five dead. I knew he was not doing anything. I wouldn't have brought up Ward McAllister wants to come for lunch. I would have been, oh, I know you didn't do anything wrong. We're going to get those guys. You know, that's the argument. It's right there. Chamberlain's the walking place that it works. A hundred percent. Turner, like if you say Chamberlain, like 2.0, she's sitting right there saying all the right things. Now, it's a curiosity if she's going to continue to, you know, tap, tap, tap at that door or if she's going to back off now. I mean, do you think she takes another run at it now that there is a crack? No. No? Because I don't think she knows about those cracks, right? She's out with Oscar. I, dude, you don't think that, like, servants chat? I think servants chat. Maybe. Maybe they do. I don't know how much everyone is chatting to Turner, though. I think she is a, a, okay. a little bit of a black sheep even in, within the staff downstairs. She's definitely made herself at arm's length. Right. Well, I mean, she has quite literally said, I am better than all of you. Like, you know, and people don't want to hear that. No one wants to be told that, you know, our paychecks look the same. Where do you get off saying that you're better than me? Let's stick with Gladys, though, before, because you mentioned Larry, and we obviously, Larry finally has a storyline, maybe, kind of, sort of. So let's get to him in a second. But let's go to the creepiest tea party you've ever been to, where we feed dolls tea and sandwiches, and we keep them happy. Uh, what did you think of old Mimi Fish's creepy doll tea party? Uh, just <laughs> just as a concept, because I got Caroline. This was a real thing. Mimi uh, Fish, yeah, really? I read. Yeah. Huh. My my first thoughts were like, is this for real? Like, <laughs> what am I seeing here? Because it it took as long as it took Larry and and Gladys to realize like th- like this is really happening, and all of the like, do I take a doll? Like, what is exactly? Like, are we talking to the doll, feeding the doll? Like, what exactly are we doing? I was right there with them. I was as baffled and as 
like just completely feeling awkward and like my skin was crawling because like dolls and those like blank eyes freaky but I appreciated the setup of what it did for Carrie and Gladys and for them to be able to meet and commiserate about their mothers all of that worked perfectly for me like this is the exact scenario where you're willing to to have any port in the storm it didn't matter that this was Gladys Russell it didn't matter who it was Carrie needed someone to chit chat with dealing with her mom dealing with boy troubles and sitting at the stupid doll table like she was willing to chit chat with Gladys and that was a necessary like break for Gladys to actually start having a little friend here would you like me to fetch you a cup of tea or something to eat no thank you maybe you'd rather be on your own no I'll be all right in a minute the fact is I have a very difficult mother well I know what that's like. Your mother could not possibly be as difficult as mine. No. My mother keeps me under house arrest. I'm allowed no friends. God forbid I should speak to a man. Why has she let you come here? My brother persuaded her. But she'll regret it, and I'll pay. Shall I come and visit you? I could bring you a cake with a file in it. <laughs> What's your quarrel about? What do you think? A man, of course. Who's not good enough for you. So she says, but he is. We are really going to have to shake on that. Except for the weird ending of shaking on that. I, <laughs> I, I, I thought that was a great little meet cute. The birth of a friendship. I mean, we've seen yeah. Carrie Astor a couple of times in the show. One of the children of Mrs. Astor. You know, so I'm sure she's inundated with friends and gets all of the right invitations. I'm sure that's lonely. And Lord knows Gladys needs an ally of society. Uh, so what did you think? Because this this progresses to Carrie being over the house and the idea of the quadrille as her coming out gets born. Progress? Is is Bertha going to be receptive to this idea now because it's coming from an aster? I definitely think so. It, it had everything to do with who this came from. I think Bertha feels completely vindicated in her choices of what activities to let Gladys go to versus not. This was perfection. She ended up actually meeting just the right girl at just the right awkward circumstances that forced them to sit at the same table together and have no like, you know, uh, worries about like hierarchies and manners and stuff because they were both horrified to have to be sitting at this doll table. So it kind of like let all that stuff drop and they could just be two people commiserating about the ridiculousness of their circumstances. That's like perfect. I think Bertha's completely thrilled with how this worked out, even though from Gladys's POV, you know, she's really the one who's getting one over on her mom. For sure. For sure. I mean, even Bert and Bertha even plays it at the lunch when Gladys does a smart thing by saying Carrie Astor will be at this doll party that Larry actually has the invitation to and has invited Gladys along with. You know, once Carrie, it's it's just good subterfuge. It's like, where is the code word hidden in the sentences? You know, they all go around the table, George, Gladys, and Larry all kind of like, let her go, let her go. All she had to hear was that Carrie Astor was going to be at this tea party, and she had already decided, but it cost her nothing to be like, oh, well, when you all gang up on me, I have to let her go. <laughs> right, right, right. She looks magnanimous. She looks like the beaten, like, 
like mom kind of thing. Oh, the peer pressure. But all it was exactly what she wanted. As soon as she heard oh, Carrie yes. Astor was gonna be there. <laughs> yes, most definitely. And hey, I'm I'm actually pleasantly surprised at Carrie right now. I hope she turns out to be a good person and a good friend, doesn't do anything bizarre, doesn't, you know, pull the rug out from under Gladys and be weird to her. I mean, this is also a pretty uh, tropey situation where the super duper popular girl ends up doing something mean to the girl who's not so popular. So right, this could easily be fingers. Gladys getting pantsed in the middle of 61st Street. You Total know? like carry blood on her head at the prom kind yes. of badness too. It feels right. that way. So right. I'm really hoping that Carrie's a good person, good heart, not not looking to, to cause Gladys any embarrassment. Really hoping for that, Larry. Oh, Larry. Oh, Larry, Larry. <laughs> Who knew he had any aspirations? Who knew? He wants to be an architect. He gets caught red-handed coming out of Stanford White's office. How funny to come out of an architect's office red-handed. Well, in this world, every if you're not where you're supposed to be, it's all red-handed, right? It's There's, all red hands. Everyone is accountable. <laughs> you have to be exactly where you're supposed to be or else the, the fucking peep, the uh, approval patrol is going to come down on you hard. <laughs> Right. What do we think about the storyline? Is Stanford white and all he's done for the Russell family going to be enough juice to get George on board? Or does Larry have an uphill losing battle here to try and become an architect? You know, to be honest with you, we only got a couple of sentences here. So it's very hard for me to sink my teeth into how juicy this really is. Like, it's like, I feel like I just smelled the entree. I haven't actually tasted it yet. So I'm not sure how juicy this story is going to be or if it's just going to be like, okay, well, so now we kind of know his career path and maybe this is going to ruffle feathers, but maybe they'll be cool with it. Well, we know that he's working for his father, right? They established that in the first episode, I think, with Larry being home from school. Oh, there's no time to wait he'll come working for me right away kind of thing so we know there's going to be something just based on how he talks to marion my father wants me to follow in his footsteps and, and be in the family business so we know there's going to be some clash expectations but, of right. course but george is the softer of the two parents it seems so who knows that's with his daughter though but we haven't really seen him interact with his son very true. So I don't, but I look forward to finding out more about Larry and, you know, maybe he does have a talent here and I certainly wouldn't want it to go wasted. So good luck, Larry. I hope this works out for you. I just want to see Stanford White's glorious mustache again some more. Love it. You're about the facial hair, huh? Uh, well, you know, you us, love the beard. You love us, the, the fancy mustache. Us bearded men have to stick together. Oh, you had mm. to see me. You had to see me squeezing Tom's R watching Hercule uh, Poirot and his fantastic <laughs> Mustache. I saw that in the trailer. It's like two mustaches on top of each other, like layered. It's, it's tremendous. It's, it's wow. truly a, it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a whole, whole thing. It is a whole thing. <laughs> Let's uh, head over to the old Red Cross because the Red Cross, again, is playing into our storyline here because they are – the episode opens with Clara walking with George and Bertha through the, cra- the train accident. By the way, just uh, from a set decoration and a production design – that train accident looked heinous. It, it did. looked so much worse than only five people being dead. Yeah, it was like crunched like a V. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's just, I mean, there was debris everywhere. It looked like someone, like, like uh, some giant child came and knocked it off and then yeah. stomped on it. Really crazy. But it's funny, Clara makes the same point that Agnes does. They both essentially say, 
Only five dead and no women and children among that number. That's pretty good. It could be much worse. Well, I mean, with a full train, that is pretty good. I mean, I know it sounds like, you know, five, five's not enough to mourn. But but when you think of a train tragedy, I mean, literally, we say it's a train wreck, meaning it's so devastating and there's so much loss of life. You know, that is our modern way of saying something is gigantically disastrous. So five isn't that bad. It's interesting, though, that when Clara says it, it doesn't sound cold and heartless. When Agnes says it, though, <laughs> it comes off a little harsh. Part of it has to do with Ada's, uh, like, <gasps> gasp at Agnes's only five. You know, it's part of the response. Like, when Clara says it, nobody does that gasp. Yeah, and, and you know, it's also part of Agnes is only five dead. That's not so bad, but... Kind of taking glee because for her it's an open and shut case. You know it's George's company, and so he'll he'll take the fall as he should. He's the captain of the ship, and you know Ada and Marion both at different points, uh, you know, say in the episode he wasn't driving the train, nor was Bertha driving the train. But corporate responsibility and resp- legal responsibility versus driving the train off the tracks, two different things. And so it does sound harsh when Agnes is saying it, but she's not wrong though either. She's not wrong, and and I was gonna actually ask you i mean where do you come down on that Uh, you know obviously there's going to be a search and investigation within russell incorporated there to try to figure out who did what to the who now but at the end of the day does the boss not take responsibility i don't think he should go to jail but he should i mean the company's going to pay through the nose that those families will be compensated forever and ever they should take a financial hit that's their cope that's george's culpability is is a financial hit the person who did the deed, the person who put on the bad, he's entrusted. They've entrusted this person with this responsibility. George understood that they were putting on, he was spending the money to put on the best materials possible. So he says, at this point in the story, we're we're going to take George's side. Let's assume he's telling the truth. We're paying full price for real good material, original material, not used you know, stuff. It sounds like George is doing not being negligent uh, from his point of view. So now it's let a- me ask you from from the standpoint of I'm I have only dipped my toe into Downton Abbey, but I do know that there's true villains in Julian Fellow's writing. Yes. So since we don't have any true villains yet, would it be unreasonable to think that some of these characters are not going to be as good and nice as they appear to be? I think we do have a villain in this show. You seem very preoccupied. You're right, ma'am. I do have some things on my mind. Such as? Miss Scott has written an article and they say it's widely talked of. I'm just concerned they might trace her back to this house. I hope this concern has nothing to do with your prejudice against Miss Scott. Prejudice, ma'am? Please learn to control it. Why do you say that, ma'am? I will say more. If you continue to try to make trouble for Miss Scott, I will be angry. You are warned. Well, it will have to do. Thank you, Armstrong. And learn some charity in the future. Now, they're using the plucky music to try to indicate that maybe it's not as as serious as we should be concerned, right? The, the definitely use of music in that scene is not foreboding. It is do-do-do-do-do. But 
Armstrong is a stone cold bitch. She's knives out for Peggy. Her scribbling. She she talks about her scribbling to Bannister and to Marion in this episode. And she says to Bauer, you know, she she's always making me out to look like an old woman who can't do her job. Bitch, Peggy doesn't want your fucking job. She's already surpassed you. Like, what are you talking about, you crazy racist bitch? Any goodwill that Armstrong got from her sad situation with her mother burned up immediately <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> Fuck you, you bitch. I mean, and people that watch Downton Abbey, like, this is straight O'Brien bullshit. Who was yes, who was uh, who was Cora's lady maid and was a fucking villain with Thomas the Footman for the first two or three seasons of the show. This is Armstrong. Armstrong and O'Brien are probably related on the bitch tree. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> the bitch tree. Oh, my God. Well, how, what did you think when they said the old and incapable? I mean, you were exactly right. This is what you predicted. The reason, uh, because you have a kind heart and a gentle heart. When we <laughs> talked about this last week, you said, well, she probably feels threatened by Peggy by her own insecurities. That's a paraphrase, I think, of what you were essentially saying. That specifically that Peggy was young and energetic and had like a really, you know, optimistic uh, viewpoint, you know, coming in and, and wanting to be helpful and whatnot. That was really grating on Armstrong. Right, exactly. But that's all part of part and parcel since, I mean, go back to the first episode, you know, when Bannister has to say, maybe we need a little disruption around here. You know, Armstrong is full I of said this last week, but I argued that age and the, and the energy mattered. It matters. And so definitely, I mean, this was like, yes, when she said old and incapable, I was like, I feel like I have Julian Fellow's phone number. Built into this, though, is the comment from the first episode of these people. Again, with the these people, I'm I'm focused on the racism here, and I'm happy Marion called her out about the prejudice. But it's also laughable to me. Like this woman, she said she's writing published articles in a newspaper. Armstrong, you are cleaning out Marion's bedchamber. Like what the fuck? You are you don't exist on the same planet. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. No, okay, but okay. And so you're pulling that as the one and only villain. I know we've got Turner as like a half sure. villain right now, but but I'm talking on the upper echelon. We've got no true villains. Everyone's got a sob story, right? Chamberlain's not a villain because really we should feel sorry for her. Mrs. Morris, she lost everything and her husband died. She's not a villain. Like, don't we kind of have to have a bad guy at the upper echelon? Someone who's a little more you know, suspicious or whatnot. I've asked Mrs. Russell to join us. Why? She is the wife of a murderer who has even more blood on his hands now than when he killed my husband. Mrs. Morris, you have suffered a great deal, and I am sorry for it. But I hope you can recognize that this evening is not the place to address a society squabble. This isn't a society squabble, since Mrs. Russell is not in society. What an interesting moment for me to arrive. Ladies, ladies, if Mrs. Russell will be seated, we'll have a show of hands, all in favor of inviting Mrs. Russell on the board. So money is the deciding factor here. Yet again, what a sad and vulgar world we live in. We're not arranging a debutante ball, Mrs. Morris. We're raising money to bring help to people in dire need all over this country. And because I cannot give as much as Mrs. Russell, I am to be jettisoned while she is enthroned? How thrilling you make it sound. Nobody is being jettisoned. Good luck with your new member and your new set of values. I do not share your admiration for either. 
I feel like Anne is kind of the villain, born out of grief. But kind of boring if that's the villain. That's as best as you got is somebody who's kind of smack talking. I I feel like if you're if you're team Bertha, if you're down with the Bertha sickness, then Mrs. Astor is the villain. Right. And and she is the unseen hand. She is the Don of the mafia family. She is the Emperor Palpatine to the Sith in Star Wars. We don't we've only seen her a handful of times and she's literally been crumpling up notices and letters and throwing them on a fire like she's some kind of Dickensian villain. But we haven't seen her other than hearing Carrie complain about her overbearing mother in this episode. Mrs. Astor is the villain because she is the one, even Agnes, the staunch, you know, guard at the gate of the old money says she takes her orders from Mrs. Astor. So she's a villain, I think, but an unseen villain. I'm kind of making like a, I smell a fart face because I want a better villain. I want like a real villain, not a societal, okay, so she makes it hard for people to, you know, climb the social ladder, but someone who's doing something that is like without, without any argument, it is wrong. And we all see that person as a villain. Down the Abbey had people who would come and go through the show, like when Bates's ex-wife or wife who then ends up and Bates ends go to prayer. So like she was a villain, right? Kind of thing. But you had connivers, you had schemers, you had O'Brien and Thomas, you had Armstrong. They were the real villains. Otherwise, it was people who were loving and sometimes cruel. You had Mary, uh, the oldest daughter, who was complicated and could be surly and could be rude, but could also be soft and could be vulnerable. But to her sister, to Edith, she was a stone cold bitch. Always like would say Should we the, make this a drinking game? Like every time Mike says bitch, you should take a drink. I mean just say, <laughs> she would say the worst things to Edith. Like I would sit there with like my mouth covered, and be like, I can't believe you said that to your sister. What oh is Lord. wrong with you? And I love Mary. Mary was like my favorite character on the show. But even I would be like, I can't believe you just said that out loud. I'm like, where is the person who's doing something that's a little more villainous? Does that equal the rakes? Does that equal the Chamberlains? Are they the level villain we get? Where they're just being a little bit much. Don't know. Maybe that's the level we get. Outliers of decency and polite society and, and polite behavior will take the form of the villain or your Armstrongs who are, you know, talking about Peggy's scribblings may cause problems for the house. Like, that's a very Downton Abbey-esque kind of thing. That's exactly the kind of shit that, like, O'Brien would have pulled whispering in Cora's ear in Downton Abbey is exactly what she does here. Uh, exactly what Armstrong does here about Peggy. Like, she set her sights on wanting to get her out and so she's like whispering in everyone's ear about the things that she thinks are weaknesses otherwise it's a lot of relationship conflict and drama those were it wasn't a villain it was relationship conflict but does this is us have a villain or is it relationship conflict it's not a drama quite in the same way that this is like Mm. this plays that music like 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 drama is happening (laughs) it actually plays that i you know what i it's it's cool if everybody's kind of low level conniving villain that's cool and maybe that's just where it ends and it does not affect my enjoyment of the show i think that you're right it's more grounded then it's not like there's actually like a mustache twisting villain I just didn't know if I should leave some room for George to actually turn out to be more of a bad guy than he's initially being presented. Using Down Abbey as an example, and if he's the Lord Grantham of the show, not perfect, has foibles, has flaws, but on the balance, 
good guy, good guy who tries but has problems and and makes poor decisions and has prejudices and 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 has his way of doing things that he doesn't want to change. I mean, that's very Lord Grantham esque. But on the whole, he ended up being a good guy who you know did the right thing eventually. If George never turns out to have like some kind of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde kind of personality, that would not surprise me from a Julian Fellows joint. But who knows? I want to leave the door open for something a little bit more. We got season two. We got to do season two with someone. <laughs> yeah, I really, I want that. I, I really, I want that. I didn't know I wanted that until this conversation. Now I want a villain. <laughs> no. Let's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's head over to uh, uh well uh, let, let's stay with Anne because we we played that Anne Morris clip. Bertha on the board of the Red Cross, Anne Morris literally walking out of the room. Is this the last we see of Anne Morris? Was this Anne Morris's Swan song, if you will. It is fair if it is, because she, like we said last time, you're getting these invitations. They are highly sought after. You cannot continue to make everyone in the room feel uncomfortable. It is not going to work out for you. And Aurora tried to warn her last time and said, like, cut it out. You're looking like a fool. And this time, I don't know what Anne was thinking. I really don't. I don't know why she couldn't read the room better than she was and just learn to kind of just like, be mad. Don't get me wrong. Be mad. Talk shit later. But I can't believe that she didn't have enough snap to look around and be like, I'm outnumbered. Like, I need to be quiet here. Um, she decided to play this other card, which no one can recover from. If you, if you yell like, then I'm leaving and you guys have lost all your values. Who exactly is chasing after you? All the people you just offended? So bad move. We know this technique, though, right? If you know you're going to be fired from the job, so you walk in there and be like, I don't, I'm not getting fired. I quit. Yeah, yeah. It only works if you don't need the company. She needs society. I don't. That's well, the only way this works. No, she. Uh, what, what happens to her? There's not an alternate society for her to go belong to. Like she, there's only one company. Right. What, no, but she knows society's gone. So the best she can do is get on a high horse of indignity and peg them all up for their worship of money as she walks out because she knows this is the death knell. If Bertha's on the board and no longer even has a place on this charity. I'm saying she made it her death knell. It didn't have to be if she could have just held her tongue. She made it that way. And so I'm just saying I'm sorry for her that she decided to do this because I think that, yeah, we we called it though. We knew she only had a couple of outings in her before she was going to make a big fool of herself and head on out because no one was going to be able to stomach her antics. I think Anne Morris represents uh, represents a whole person in this society. I kind of like this versus the death rattle versus the 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 uh, the atrophy of invites less and less and not being able to go not being able to afford a dress to go whatever because you have to start feeding your kids and starting to work and one day they're going to walk in there she's going to be a cashier at bloomingdale's or something like that right yeah we just don't have time storyline wise uh, that's, to well care. that's kind of like a death rattle right it's like you mm -hmm. know do you want to be resuscitated or do you just want to go out and so this way she kind of she she took charge of her own 
fate. She said, on my terms, I'm going to go out, whether she believes it or not, which of course she doesn't because she subscribed to this religion. No one makes a convert. Nothing makes a convert like desperation, right? So it's easy to turn on the the ills of money and how it corrupts when you no longer have money and can no longer be corrupted by it. Let me draw a parallel and go back to your impulse theme. This was an impulsive move on her part, though. She needed to hang on for as long as she could hang on because who knows, right? You're supposed to be making the most of every day you've got in this little society that was part of our other themes, right? But here's the thing. Parallel this to Agnes, to Agnes storming into a room of people within society. Look at these two women side by side. Agnes held her tongue and Anne didn't. That's an important note for everyone in the audience to make. Agnes used her wisdom and stopped trying to be like righteous was the most important thing she could be. Right was the most important thing she could be. No, she needed to read the room and understand the damage she could do to her own reputation if she didn't reel it in. Even though a lot of damage was already done and it was already still awkward. Anne didn't care. She went for broke hair and that, you know, that's where she ended. But I think that was a really smart way of paralleling these two women who are part of old money, old society and how one is still trying to hang on there and like willing to kind of like look at this situation and be like, shit, I could do too much damage. And Anne just being like, fuck it. I'm going to just blame everybody else. Like smart writing. Yes, because uh, Agnes literally has uh, all to lose, right? If she if she blows up there, it really damages her fortunes. Conversely, it's for if I'm Anne Morris, I, okay, maybe I get an invitation next week. Maybe I get an invitation in two weeks. But maybe that third week, I no longer get an invitation. And where do I get my soapbox to say, and you suck, and you suck? Well, if I don't get an invite, I, I don't get to have that soapbox moment. I don't get to have that righteous, I quit you. She does here, though. Right? If, if, if it's, it's a difference between feeling like you're retaining some of your self-dignity and self-worth by saying, you suck, and I'm leaving this board. Uh, the board's not leaving me. I'm leaving you, versus the invites just stop showing up in three weeks. Isn't this the preference? Isn't this the better if you're Only Anne? somewhat. Okay, but if I'm Anne? I'm just going to tell you like real life how Caroline's playing this. I'm trying to get enough invites to get a new husband, Mike. I have to keep going to things so that I'm still and I'm still looked at on that level. And maybe I'm going to run across a guy who's available who's then going to say like, hey, why don't we have dinner together? And like, let, we'll talk about, you know, the poor passing of Patrick. Oh, God, he was such a good guy. Come on. Over. Let's have dinner. This is what I'm hoping for because it's my one shot. That's real life, Caroline. That's what I'm doing hanging around in the bunch. I'm just trying to get my next dude because I don't have anywhere else to go. Well, she should be going drinking with Oscar or with uh, in or, trouble. or with uh, or with. <laughs> she's got to go Rakes. hang up with John, really. Yeah, or, or she should go find out where Mr. Rakes is going to be. But you hear me, right? You hear me. That's why you hang on. I do. I feel like, yeah, I, I hear you, but I think just too much baggage and, and too much. She needs she needs to do the classic move somewhere else and start over kind of thing. There's no one else that knows Patrick. You got to go with someone who knew Patrick. You can chat about Patrick and a sad passing and, you know, a little head on shoulder. You know how this works. Come on. Let's head over to uh, <laughs> Peggy's weekly lesson to Marion about how the world works. Now we need a cab. I'll drop you off at the Globe offices. 
Where to? Cedar Street in Lower Manhattan, please, and then to 61st Street. I'll drive you, not her. Aren't you in business to make money, sir? Step back. I will not step back. <laughs> How rude. But it's not unusual. What was the point of that? Aren't some fights worth having? Not if it's going to make me late for my meeting. I don't understand. You've just discovered injustice. I've lived with it my whole life. If I spent every day fighting with bigots, I'd never get anything done. This time, let me hail the cab. If it stops, that means it'll take me. Fair lesson for for Marion to learn here. Does, is there some validity to her? Shouldn't we be fighting this always? Marion hasn't had to fight this fight, has no idea what this fight entails. And like Peggy said, if I fight this fight every second, I'm going to be late to everything. So I can't afford to do that. I have to move on with my world. Very effective. And I, w- I was actually watching with my son and I was like, do you see this? Do you see how they, I, you know, I tell you all the time. I love it when TV tells me how to fix a problem that I hadn't even considered how to fix it that way. Like when Peggy's like, let me hail the cab. And if they stop for me, then they'll definitely take us both. Duh. (laughs) Good call, Peggy. Super smart and way to show us how to handle these things. Like I was like, wow, that's smart. So yeah. And again, Marion, didn't you have like a little moment where you're like, oh, no one makes me sigh more than Marion when she's with Peggy. (laughs) We need to have like the how do you solve a problem like Marion song. (laughs) I love it. I love it. She's just a minx. Like, why, why didn't she, why does she not have her head wrapped around racism? I know we had this all the way back when they're on the train platform and she's like, go ahead. You don't need to wait with me. And she's like, nah, dude, we have to be the last to load onto the train. Marion. Have you ever peeked out your window when I'm talking to my dad and I have to like literally move out of the way of white people? It's a societal norm that still exists today. This is something you, you, still, right. you still hear about in Manhattan today. People of color not being able to get cab, ride, cab rides, especially if that cab ride takes them out of Manhattan. You know, I, I, got, I got thrown out of a cab for wanting to go to Brooklyn when I was in my early 20s because it was raining. I couldn't imagine. And I have no frame of reference for what it would be to be a person of color where the cab doesn't even stop to find out where you're going. It just keeps driving by. I mean, I kind of get where Marion's going here, but also when she says things like, should we be fighting injustice every day? It does seem like a little like you because you think that because you don't fight injustice every day. Like, I literally live with it every day. That's what Peggy's saying. Like, I fight I fight injustice every day because that's my existence. Right. right. That That is so unique that this, oh, we should take this moment. It's like, no, dude. Right. Right. No shooting star. No, no, no. The more you know is going to come shooting over your head for this cab moment here. No, no, unfortunately not. I mean, again, you know, I I know there are some people who are really super duper in love with Marion. And I know that right now she's a frustrating character. And we are going to look back and say, look at how far she has come. Look at the growth of this woman. She has learned so much. But right now we are still in that like toddler phase of like oh my god she touched the stove ah why doesn't she know anything yet oh my god she just put bigotry in her mouth Spit yeah, that and out, ate it. She Spit freaking it. ate it. And we were like, no, no, take it out of your mouth. We're not in fighting justice right now. We have to get to the globe offices. <laughs> exactly. She's anticking. She's, she wants to put on her own seatbelt. I can do it. And we're like, stop it. It's a five-point harness. You can't do it. <laughs> Peggy, increase circulation for the globe. Great news. <gasps> so proud of her. So proud. The look on her face. Oh, my God. She was the, speechless. It washed over her. Did you see her eyes just be like, oh. 
I mean, she is the most well-spoken, intelligent character on the show, and she was speechless. She did not know what to do. <laughs> it, it was amazing and such a great, like, feather in her cap to share with her mom and and really, like, have something so quantifiable to, like, be like, this isn't just, like, people liked my work. Because that's another thing that's so difficult in the arts. And we talked about this profession being a difficult thing to, to sell parents. Sometimes there's not a really good way to show you're being successful. So this type of thing where actual numbers circulation changed. This is different. Ah, that is just so wonderful for her. I'm so glad. What great feedback on your first thing that you're working on. Now, let's talk about an aspect of it, though, because uh, Mr. Fortune makes the note that, you know, people of color don't get access to interviews like people like Clara Barton. And Peggy says... She doesn't name Marion by name, but she says it was really my friend who had the access and I was able just to kind of capitalize on that. Is this the benefit of Marion as a friend? Because you and I have talked often on this podcast. What is the benefits of friendship here? It seems like Marion gets a lot more out of being Peggy's friend than Peggy gets out of being Marion's friend. Is this yeah. the benefit? It's if she gets access. Is that what Marion's bringing to the table? I think that that's fair. I think it's fair that the opportunity is is 100% presented to her. I think also, to be fair, Agnes also helps present that. So if Marianne wasn't there, could she still have gone? Maybe, because Agnes kind of has the the um, attitude of sort of understanding the, the opportunities that are around. Like she says, you know, I don't want to know that much about it. But if you could have written a story where Marianne didn't exist for Peggy and Peggy still goes to the Red Cross event. I think you could have. You're right. It makes it easier and certainly does give Marion something to provide, you know, a little bit more equity in the friendship. Do you think she fully understands she's giving those opportunities to Peggy? No, because I don't think she thinks that way. I think she, she truly, doesn't. She That's doesn't think I'm she's like, like wondering I'm if she gets my, it. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't think she is. But but Peggy gets it, though. Peggy understands this is a benefit of why I have to forgive this bonehead in her and, and, and her antics is because it gets, it, you know, I like her. She, I mean, she says last week, she's like, you have a kind heart. <sighs> yeah. But, you know, it's like you have a kind heart. And yes. also because, you know, you help me get it's access to shit like Clara Barton. Very bless your heart. It's very bless your heart then does she get credit for providing that access to peggy when she doesn't even know she's doing it or is that agnes no it's not agnes i i think it's very much mary agnes told her to go not or not every time though. I mean, Marion brought her to the meeting that we saw in this episode. I don't think that was because of Agnes saying so. I think she gets credit. It's 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 not about credit. It's more about it's just the perk that comes with the thing. From Peggy's point of view, when she's saying there, like, why do I put up with this silly girl who doesn't know how the world works in the most simplest ways? It gets me access to people like Clara Barton, and that helps me. So if I'm Peggy and I'm doing my my pros and cons list of friendship with Marion, it's a pro. It it, it she, you know it's it's a benefit. It's it's one of the perks that comes with the with the quote unquote friendship. Though two episodes ago she said, "Stop acting like we're friends. We're not friends." <laughs> Right, right. Of course, in every sunshiny time, you have some, you know, some clouds. And what should be a happy moment in the Scott house becomes kind of a, a sad downtrodden one because Mr. Scott is just so reticent to accept or encourage this career choice. Let's listen to Peggy and Dorothy talk. No need. I can't stay long. Long enough for me to congratulate you in person on your story. Mm -hmm. 
Have you shown it to father? Yes. But he didn't read it. He read it. But he doesn't wish to encourage you to pursue a career that he thinks is bound to fail. He's wrong. I've just come from Mr. Fortune's office. He said my article has increased their circulation. You should tell your father that. <laughs> Why? When he doesn't approve of anything I do. We have to get through it. We're a family and we must get through it. Please don't come by 61st Street again and speak with Miss Brooke about family matters. Don't cut us out, Peggy. I don't want to cut you out, Mama. I've never wanted that. Just your father. Mrs. Scott's voice is so loving the tone of her voice when she says long enough for me to congratulate you on your first article oh god it just it like it goes right into my heart like there's something about the tone of her voice and the cadence and everything that just it's like a big warm blanket i have teared up thinking about her saying but we haven't had my birthday cake yet I I'm just thinking about it has made me get sniffly because <laughs> Audra McDonald is a goddamn queen and she deserves really is. She really, she is. really is. I mean, her, she is just a, a big heart on legs. Like, you know, she's just she's so, all empathy. Yeah. She's, she's yeah. so desperate to make this situation work. And I, I have so much compassion for the situation when she's trying to say like, please don't cut us out. Please just try to work this through. You know, Arthur is really, mm, I mean, you said he's reticent to accept it. I mean, he seems to be adamant against accepting anything she does. If he won't even see these small steps and acknowledge them for what they are, that that's a level of stubbornness that it's willful. It's will, I don't feel willful like you could blindness. get through it. Yeah. yeah. Man, I really hope for these two women that they figure out a way to continue to be a, a little family together. And and I hope to God that Arthur will come around. But I really want Peggy to hang on to her mom. She's such an asset to her. And she is doing everything she can to be there for Peggy, coming to her place of work, inviting her into the house, asking her to come to the birthday. I mean, mom is doing everything she can do to try to make this work. Man, I just, I, I want these two to stick it out together. And I really hope that Arthur comes around, but I hope they retain a relationship regardless. Which is what they're essentially talking about at the end they're of trying. this. Yeah. At the end of this clip here is, I don't want to cut you out, Mama. Right. It's like they put it in the universe. Like, like if there's a way, universe help us find it. You know, guys, we have to talk about Ward McAllister coming to lunch. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what was more audacious. One was, was. Wait, can I just say this feels a lot like bingo, where it feels like you're like. <laughs> are rolling the cage and i do not know what name you're going to pick out of the cage next you're like you guys we've got to talk about that outfit <laughs> i'm like is that what we're going to talk about next we have to go back to the ward McAllister lunch i am ready and excited to talk about the ward McAllister lunch this is a classic example Bingo. of something <laughs> that made me laugh until it made me cringe oh Let's shit okay what what's this you know what it is, a salad fork. We never lay a fork without a knife or a spoon to partner it. Nor is salad a course on its own. It is eaten with the entree or the remove on salad plates which fit the curve of a larger dish. And what is this? 
What does it look like, Mr. Bannister? A spoon for the coffee. No teaspoon is ever laid on an English table. If one is needed, it is supplied at the opposite moment. Mrs. Russell, good day to you. My maid told me you were here. This is very kind. I'm pleased to be of assistance. There are so many snares designed to catch us out. We have it under control, ma'am. I'm afraid I've asked too much of you, Church. It wasn't fair of me. Mr. Bannister, for all our sakes, is there any chance I can prevail on you to take charge? When Bannister says, what is this? You know what it is! <laughs> I mean, it's so cringy, and then he gets replaced! I mean, I, I, my heart goes out to Church. It's a very funny scene up until he, he loses his job, essentially. Maybe this segment could be called, like, heartbreaking moments of this episode. So first it was everything with Peggy and her mom, and then now we're going over to Church and Bannister and having our little heart pulled on by church and and being so completely out of it when it comes to what is the correct way to do service i mean just his his indignation that you know what it is it is a teaspoon <laughs> you know it, it's just so funny but it I mean, would 100 percent feel like why are you making me jump through these hoops cut it out Let's talk about the actual lunch itself, though, because Bertha has this is this is her getting called up to the majors and having her first like starting pitching. Ward is coming to the palace and man, she nails it kind of out of the gate. Right. The first thing he says when Bannister is there to greet him, English butler. Good start. Mm-hmm. I loved that. And he was obviously marveling at the house itself, at how beautiful it was. I mean, he was taken aback by everything. But then the gifts. Ooh, I love that. That's that's still like a thing. Okay, so this is funny. And you know that I have some of these customs, partially because I'm Southern. But in Bunko, it's like a thing to like put a little present at everybody's spot and sometimes people do get so fancy as to have like individual monogram gifts at each person's spot um you know then people got lazy and it was just like 12 of one thing <laughs> but these presents were like gorgeous i mean when ward opens his he was like yes queen oh, i freaking love this <laughs> i mean I, I am well aware of your bunko <laughs> habits, and you and I have, have discussed this many times over the years that I think That's it's insane funny. that it happens. <laughs> it's not insane. It just harkens back to another time. I've been I've been to many lunches, guys. I've never had uh, uh, any kind of monogram bullshit. Sad. My own wedding. I didn't even get <gasps> Wait, chocolates at my own. Bullshit? I didn't even have chocolates <sighs> at my own wedding. Some little shit kid took the wet chocolates from my own table at my wedding i oh, never God. get presents at my on my plate that's the saddest thing i ever heard yes it was very sad there was a summer of <laughs> weddings my one of mine being included in that and every single wedding i went to the chocolate was taken from my <gasps> place setting someone was out to get me and was fucking with me that summer but whatever. wow yes. you're a real ann morris <laughs> probably should have been a warning <laughs> Anyway, yeah, but guys, I, I will put up on Facebook. I, I I got a wonderful screen grab of the McAllister cigarette case. That was more ornate than any of the other guys's cigarette case. And I think if you look, I think George even gives like an eyebrow to Bertha, like the fuck, really? Like this is what yeah. we're doing. It was gorgeous, though. God, it had the M and the W. Oh, mm. Yeah, it's 
sexy as hell. I mean, if you're into, yeah. you know, bejeweled cigarette <laughs> if cases. If you're into that. <laughs> but I mean, even with the flowers, right? Him knowing the flowers that are out of season and are hard to get. And of course, she has them all in mm. bloom on her table. I thought you and I thought Beth Kushnick actually would, would have loved that scene. Well, and they set the table for that earlier on when she was going through and saying, get rid of the carnations. I said no carnations. This was episodes ago. So it like lets you know, like, watch because she's like paying attention to those types of details she said and then she even says because she knows the answer because she's a smart woman and we don't ask questions that we don't know the answers to she says it's not too much is it and he says (laughs) there's never too much with me darling you know (laughs) he is like the most fun i swear to god (laughs) he is he's he's a party in the pocket but uh yeah just a great scene i mean she really hits that out of the park it goes off but even with the agnes stuff aside she's punched her ticket right i mean she has she has wooed cerberus snarling to protect the mystic rose we can't be far from her getting in front of mrs astor i feel like right we have to this season i think we have to whether it goes good or it goes badly i think we have to get in front of mrs astor before we wrap it up guys i just want to touch base only because we brought it up a couple episodes ago how happy were you Caroline, that they showed Mrs. Bauer paying a dollar to Ada for her gambling debt. We were just talking about this, that we hoped it wasn't a storyline that they were going to drop, that part of the downstairs intrigue and getting to know all of the servants in both houses, this was one of the storylines that they introduced and then we hadn't heard anything about. In this episode, we see Mrs. Bauer paying her a dollar and Ada so sweet saying, well, let me stop. Were you happy that they didn't drop the storyline? Yes, because I don't like it ever when they bring up a storyline, especially one that was pretty dramatic at the time. I mean, that man yelling at her outside was pretty scary. Um, And it did serve to have this relationship with Ada. It exposed Oscar a little bit with Oscar and Ada. So there was a lot that was going along with this storyline to then just suddenly not hear about it anymore. I'm not exactly sure what we were supposed to get from this interaction besides the storyline is ongoing that and that this woman is, you know, good to her word and she is going to pay Ada back. And, you know, that there is this ongoing storyline. The only thing I could think of it, one was Ada being very sweet to her and saying, please. I mean, she's saying it's a dollar and she's saying, you know, this must be such an imposition for you to have to do. And she's kind of willing to forgive the debt, right? She is. I mean, she doesn't say it exactly. But Mrs. Bauer in her pride says, no, no, I I want to do it. It's good for me to do it. The only beyond Ada being a sweetie pie is that Bannister doesn't see the transaction, but he sees Mrs. Bauer leaving the room and cocks an eyebrow. So, you know, again, everyone is accountable for where you're supposed to be at all times. And Mrs. Bauer, the chef, the cook, should not be in the drawing room talking to Ada Brooke during the middle of the day. And so maybe that, because as far as we know, Bannister doesn't know what happened. And so maybe maybe it's setting the table for him starting to ask questions of what's happening in this house. That makes sense. Ruffling some feathers for sure. Right, because, right, we, we know this is a society where everyone has a station and there's accountability and there are channels, right? You don't go right to the top person. You go through the channels if there's an issue or something. So that's the only thing I could think of for doing it beyond just not dropping the storyline. Bannister and Jack, that lunch, the, the last part of the lunch is that Jack ends up having to serve lunch for the sisters, hijinks it was fun it was great hijinks i loved i loved watching jack he didn't know whether to had the gloves on or the gloves off it was just good fun 
I appreciated that Ada was like, man, they're making this hard for you. <laughs> like, like Bannister's giving you these complicated rules and everything. Like it, Ada was shining in all these small moments. Like, yes, it was about Jack replacing Bannister. But really, Ada, like, can I have something to eat now? Like oh all God. her little moments were so funny and cute and just like pure Ada. There were some really good moments of, of Ada and Agnes talking about the Bannister situation that really had me laughing. Then why must it be at lunchtime? Won't the lawyer want to eat some luncheon? Or is he a fasting monk? No. Then go in the morning and serve us our luncheon when we need it. But he only opens his office from noon to three, Mum. And it will take three hours? I fear so. Bannister is throwing us over to see a lawyer who fasts at lunchtime. But how interesting. Is he a Muslim? And is it Ramadan? The entire fasting monk thing, I was chuckling the entire time. And the way that they kept bringing it back up, I was like, Ada, you are like perfection when it comes to adding a little lightness, some comic relief here. She was sprinkled all over the place like this. Loved it. Yeah, I mean, there was a great scene, and I didn't include the clip, but later on, Ada's trying to relate what happened to Marion, and she's, she's something about she she mixes up the fasting monks thing. She's like, "But I may be muddle brained about it." Just yeah. very funny, <laughs> very very funny. Yeah, it, I was glad because we had such a sad one, you know, in the previous episode with with the the boy who who wasn't to be for Ada. That I was glad to see her just being like lighthearted, you know. Yes. Yes, and and with the Jack thing, just because they've raised the issue before, Bridget was very supportive of Jack in this episode. I don't know yes. what's going to happen with it. I mean, if anything, but it's nice to see that after her talk with Mrs. Bauer, she's not pushing Jack away. She was being very supportive of him. I like that. I like when people get along. I don't like confrontation. I like when people are being nice to each other and getting along. So I was I was very happy at how supportive the staff were of Jack and his efforts, but I also appreciated all of the hijinks with it. When he is serving, he's got the tray in front of Ada, and Agnes asks for wine. He pulls the tray away from Ada just as she was reaching for food, and then completely forgets about the fact that she hasn't eaten until she asks later on, can I have some food? It Very funny. It was great physical humor, great visual gags. Okay, Mike, so as we're winding down this episode, tell me one thing, and I know it's difficult, it's very difficult to narrow it down to one thing, but one thing that you're looking forward to moving forward, or at least that you're like riveted by, a storyline that you're like really, really latched onto right now. I mean, for me, it's got to be George and the train accident and this this stress fractures that we're seeing between him and Bertha. Uh, you know, this is something new. This is a development coming late in the season. So it's it's definitely got me sitting forward and, and stroking my, my chin going, what is going to happen there? Uh, and obviously the stress that this train accident investigation is going to put on them. That's for me. How about for you? What are you looking forward to? This Gladys and Carrie friendship could bring a lot of interesting storylines moving forward that hopefully is going to kind of wrap uh, Larry up into some of that stuff, too. So I'm eager to see some new storylines coming out of those. This is Caroline. This is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe or follow. They keep changing the verbiage depending on where you are. That would be most appreciated. And while you're there, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review, that would be fantastic because, you know, if you do, maybe we'll send you a bejeweled monogrammed cigarette case. You don't know. We might do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be so fancy. Please don't forget. Don't forget to check out our sister site, Pop Culture Review, for some little like sneak peeks for pictures and extra information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.